Please be seated. So as you all know, Colin just finished a series on Revelation this last week, and seriously, how do you follow a series on Revelation? That's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Because what is Revelation? In Revelation, it's basically Jesus just throwing back the curtain on his awesomeness and glory in a way we rarely get to see with that intensity at any other point in the Bible. So, so how do you follow something like that? Well, the truth is, you really don't, right? I mean, even the Holy Spirit himself went ahead and closed the book after Revelation. And so, so what, what do you do with that? Well, here's the thing. I love Revelation. I love watching Jesus just dominate his enemies. And if you really love that, and if you've really enjoyed that these last several weeks and months, but you're not really finished with it, what do you do? Because you can't really go sequel, right? So what you got to do is you got to go prequel. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to back up to early on in Jesus' ministry, right at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and watch as he comes face to face in the flesh with one of his with one of his enemies. And that's what we're going to find today in Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven. Now you probably noticed in your bulletin the text is not all together there because we put a number of passages from the Old Testament uh, in between the passages from the New Testament, and so. Uh, because of that, it would probably be a good idea to follow along in your Bible this morning or just listen along as we read the text from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Would you please rise for the reading of God's Word? This is the Word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, I need to admit, I really, really love this passage, but I didn't always really like it. As a matter of fact, for the longest time, I really kind of struggled to understand what this passage was all about. I mean, after all, during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, Satan, as far as we know, never confronts Jesus face to face. He always uses human agents to attack Jesus. You can think of King Herod, perhaps, or, or Judas. So what's so important here? What is it about this interaction? Why this one time did Satan come and personally interact with Jesus face to face? 
I would like to suggest if we only read this New Testament account, we're really going to miss the main idea because what we're likely to come away with is the idea that Jesus is primarily teaching us how to overcome temptation by using the Scriptures or quoting the Scriptures. However, I would like to suggest that something far more profound is happening here. One thing Colin said last week was that to understand the New Testament, we really need to deeply understand the Old Testament. And this is an excellent illustration of that point. As a matter of fact, I think we can only truly understand this text if we take the time to go back and look up each one of these Old Testament texts that Satan and Jesus are quoting back and forth to each other. So that's what we're going to do this morning. You probably noticed again in your bulletin that our text today has those Old Testament quotes uh, placed there in each one of those places. And so I would really encourage you to keep your bulletins open and follow along as we go through that this morning. Now first, the context. Here's the setup to this big confrontation in verses 1 and 2. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, in the Bible, when you read the words 40 and wilderness together, what should immediately jump into your mind? Somebody, what should immediately jump in your mind when you read 40 and wilderness together? The Exodus, right? Absolutely. And in fact, the Exodus is a major theme which will run through this entire passage. It will be very important at every single point in this passage this morning. And I also want to mention here, it's very important to note that Jesus is not randomly quoting the New Testament. It's not like Satan is saying something about being hungry and so Jesus thinks, well, where in the Old Testament does it say something about bread? Every single one of Jesus' three direct quotes comes within a two-chapter section. They're all from a very particular part of the Old Testament. And that part is immediately after Moses and the children of Israel finished their 40 years of testing in the wilderness. Sound familiar? It should. 40 years of testing in the wilderness, but right before they're about to cross into the promised land is this section of text that Moses quotes, and Jesus is quoting Moses over and over and over again, all from that very narrow range, but all for a very important reason. So with that in mind, let's dig into these temptations and see what we can learn this morning. Temptation number one, we'll find it in verses three and four. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, that bread part is really important, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But what is the central element of what Satan is saying here? Again, if you are the son of God. Now, this is a question of identity. I just want to put a little idea in your heads, see, let you kick it around a little bit. What if Satan is questioning the identity of Jesus because he doesn't know exactly at this point who Jesus is? What if he's come down here to find out personally because he doesn't know exactly who he's dealing with? Now, you might think, well, it's Satan. Of course he knows who Jesus was. But not necessarily. Remember, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. You know because you know the end of the story. But Satan doesn't know the future and he's not omniscient. What if he didn't know at this point who Jesus was? Remember, when Satan used King Herod to kill all the babies, what did they kill? All the babies in Bethlehem, two years old and down. Well, why did they kill them all? Because they didn't know who he was, right? It wasn't like Jesus glowed blue or something, right? I mean, he was not known. And even after that moment, what did God do? God took Jesus and hid him from his enemies, presumably also Satan. 
until the time of his being revealed in his public ministry. Now, certainly, absolutely, Satan was expecting the Messiah. You remember those 400 great years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Between Malachi chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1, God was silent for 400 years. And what were those last words that he said to him? What was the last thing, the thing that he left them with right before that long period of silence? In Malachi chapter 4, it talked about the coming of Elijah... And Elijah was going to come again and he was going to pronounce this great and awesome day of the Lord. And so all of a sudden now, these 400 years later, here comes John the Baptist, dressed specifically like Elijah and preaching out of Malachi chapter 4. And so Satan certainly knew something really big was at hand. And I think what he's doing here is coming down to personally see, is this man who this John the Baptist says he is? Could this Jesus be... The one that we've waited for. And so here he comes down. And how does he challenge him? He starts with this question. If you are the son of God. If you are who you say you are. You might say who are you? He's, he's, he's working out Jesus' identity. Then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now if you're Jesus and you're going to reveal your identity to Satan. How would you do it? What's really fascinating is the particular text that he picks. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, but to understand, I want to get the whole context. So let's read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Get those two verses extra for context. It says this, The whole commandment that I command you today shall be, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Here's the quote. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here in this text, look what we have here. We have 40 wilderness, hunger, and bread. Does that sound familiar? Well, absolutely. Jesus is pointing Satan to this current situation. And he's tying what happened to Moses and the children of Israel in the desert to what was happening there in that very moment. But much more important than that, like Matthew 4, this Deuteronomy 8 is a testing passage. It's a passage about, remember, we typically think of this story as the temptation of Jesus. But temptation and testing is the same word. It is the temptation and the testing of of Jesus. And Deuteronomy, like Matthew 4, is a testing passage. But what was the test? Look what it says in the second part of verse 2 there in Deuteronomy 8. God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. And what was the test? Whether you would keep his commandments or not. So Satan is basically asking, who are you? And Jesus' reply is, I am the great commandment keeper. Now, this is a really, really big deal, right? Because in the history of mankind and certainly the history of Israel, Satan had gotten everybody to break the commandments. Every single person. Even venerable Moses who received the commandments broke the commandments. Every child of Israel who left Egypt, who was liberated, they all, in their 40 in the wilderness, they all broke those commandments. And here Jesus was saying, I'm going to do what no one has ever done before me. I am going to keep all of the commandments of God. 
And so he's declaring himself to be the great commandment keeper. Now I want you to put a pen in your mind. Hold that there just for a moment. And keep the, remember that while we go to temptation number two, which is my favorite temptation, by the way. I don't know if we should have favorite temptations. That's kind of weird, but this is my favorite one of the three. Temptation number two, we find this in verses five through seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, and once again, the exact same language, the exact same statement, if you are the son of God, again, a question of identity, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So once again, what is that central question? The central question once again is, who are you? But this time, Satan actually quotes the scripture himself then to follow that. And of all the places that he could have quoted, he quotes Psalm 91. And let me just say, this quote is amazing. I really, really do hate to attribute the word amazing to anything that Satan ever does. But this quote is genuinely amazing, this, the text that Satan picks here in Psalm 91. And why? What's the big deal about that particular psalm? Well, Psalm 91 is a prophetic psalm. And it talks about one who would one day come and pass the very test that Satan was giving to Jesus right there in the wilderness. What's the big deal about that test? Let's, let's take a look at it. Uh, I would encourage you, by the way, this week to look through the entirety of Psalm 91. It's fabulous, uh, but we're going to concentrate just on verses 9 through 13 this morning. Psalm 91, verses 9 through 13. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. And here's the quote. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So in other words, one day, sometime, somewhere, there was a man coming and he was going to pass this test. But what's the big deal about this test? Look what it says in the very next verse. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So whoever it is that comes and passes this test, what is the next thing they will do? They will crush the serpent under their feet. Whoa, right? That's why Satan wants to know who's going to be the one to come pass that test. And where we heard that language before, that's Genesis 3. That's way back in the garden, right? When the Lord says, one day someone's coming and he's going to crush your head and you will strike his heel. So when Satan is asking, who are you? And then he quotes Psalm 91. What's he really asking? Are you him? Are you the snake crusher? Could it be? Could it be that you're the one that I've waited all of human history to come and meet? Are you the one? Is it possibly you? How would you answer something like that? That is is an awesome question. That is a life-changing, watershed-type question. And if you were Christ, you could easily just say, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am and I'm here. But he is going to just take that amazing question and take it to a whole nother level because he's not just going to respond, yes, I am. He's going to do something much greater with that idea. And he's going to answer him by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. And let me read that for you. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him. At Massa. Now, might be some of you thinking, okay, 
My Old Testament feels a little rusty at this point. Massa, that kind of sounds familiar, but I don't really remember what happened there. Okay, I want to read this passage, but don't get lost here. Don't get lost as I read this text, because remember, Satan has just asked him basically, are you the snake crusher? And the answer to that dread question is found right here in what happened at Massa. Let's read from Exodus 17, verses 2 through 7. Stay with me in this text. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So again, once again, we have another passage about the children of Israel and the wilderness. And again, it is another passage about testing. But this time, what is the test? We see it there at the end of verse 7. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So Satan's question is, are you the snake crusher? And Jesus' reply is, the real question is not, is the snake crusher here? The real question is, is God here? Is the Lord among us or not? This is confirmed, as as we can see in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, this is some of the most extensive commentary that the Holy Spirit gives us through the Apostle Paul uh, about this exact event, this event at Meribah and the rock in the wilderness. And it says this. Follow this and see what the Holy Spirit says about this. It's very interesting. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual rock. For they drank... From the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So that day out in the wilderness with the children of Israel, when they were saying, is the Lord here or not? The New Testament's answer is, yes, Christ is here. But that wasn't enough. They they couldn't see it, right? And so it goes on in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So what, what is the problem here? Unlike Jesus, they were not commandment keepers. In their testing, after 40 in the wilderness, they were not commandment keepers. They were breaking all of the commandments of God, right? They were not like Christ. And what is the very next line after exposing them as as they were not commandment keepers? What is the very next thing that text says? We must not put God to the test. Well, yes, but more specifically, we must not put 
Christ to the test. When they were testing them out in the wilderness, when they were testing God, it wasn't just that they were testing God, specifically they were testing Christ. So I don't think in the context of now of Jesus and Satan, that Jesus is so much pointing to the sky and saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test, so much as he's saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That passage in Corinthians goes on from verse 9 to talk about temptation. It's actually very interesting, uh, but we're going to get to that a little bit later in just a minute. For right now, though, let's recap where we are so far. In temptation 1, we have the question, who are you? And what is the reply? I am the great commandment keeper. And in temptation number two, who are you? I am the snake crusher. But even more than that, I am the Lord your God. Jesus is declaring himself to be the great God-man, Jesus Christ, right? The great serpent-crushing, redeeming Messiah. He is preaching both his perfect humanity and his divinity from the Old Testament. He's preaching the hypostatic union from the Old Testament. This is a tremendous passage revealing the identity of Jesus right there at the very beginning of his ministry. So now, with all of that in mind, let's go on to temptation number three, which is very interesting, not just for what it says, but for, interestingly enough, for what it doesn't say. Remember, temptation one begins with, if you are the Son of God, command these stones. And temptation two begins with, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. What does temptation three not say? There's no more if you are the Son of God, right? This is no longer about who Jesus is. Satan fully realizes now who he's facing. He is facing the great God-man and he knows it now. And so what do you do with that? If you're Satan and you're standing face to face with Christ and you know now who he is, what do you do with that knowledge? What do you do in the face of that kind of power? Well, you apparently do temptation number three. And look what he tries to do. This is a very interesting uh, idea. Temptation number three, verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So what's Satan basically saying here? He's like, okay, look, I get it. You're the big shot up there, but I'm the big shot down here. This is my world, and this is my stuff. And you know what? Look, I'll even give it to you, but you've got to ask me nicely. No, 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 more than that. You've got to get down on your knees and worship me to get a hold of my stuff. Whoa, 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 whoa. That is a heavy thing to say to the Son of God. And if you were Jesus, how do you respond at that point? What do you say to something like that? Well, you do it by quoting Deuteronomy 6. And again, let's read the quote in context. Deuteronomy 6, we're going to read verses 10 through 13. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat, and when you are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And here's the quote. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. 
So once again, he's bringing them one more time back to the Exodus. But something has changed now. Just like Satan is no longer asking about his identity, something has changed in Jesus' answers too. He's no longer looking back at the temptations in the wilderness. He's now looking forward into the promised land. He's looking forward to what is to come. So what then is all this part about great and good cities that you didn't build and houses that full of things that you didn't fill and cisterns you didn't dig? What is all that all about? Who built the houses? Who planted those vineyards? Who did all of that? Well, amongst other people, the Canaanites did all of that. And so just like Jesus and Satan in the wilderness, back in the days of Moses and the children of Israel, there were people there. There were people there standing there saying, hey, this is our stuff, right? You can't just come in and have our stuff for free, right? This is our things. And so what do you do there? So what is Jesus saying then? Quick question. When the children of Israel marched into the promised land under Joshua, which, as you know, curiously enough in Greek, is the exact same name as Jesus. So when the children of Israel entered the promised land under the leadership of Jesus or Joshua, did they walk up to the Canaanites and say, oh, hey, please, Mr. Canaanite, can we, can we just have some of your stuff? That stuff looks real nice. I, we'd love to have some of that. Could, could we please have some of your things? Do you think that's how they did it? No, 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 they didn't. They marched into the promised land and they took those things by force. Therefore, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm not going to ask you nicely for your stuff. And much less am I going to get down on my knees and worship you. No, I am going to come. Yes, this might be your things temporarily now, but I'm not going to ask you for them. I am going to come in. My kingdom is coming. And we are going to take all of this by force. Whoa, that is an amazing thing to say. Satan thinking, oh, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to bargain for these things. No, he's saying, I am going to come and I am going to rip all of this out of your hands by force. What an awesome reply. And he doesn't just say that to Satan. He says that to everybody who compromises with the world, everybody who bows the knee to Satan. If you keep reading in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. What a powerful interchange this is between these two. With Satan coming to the dramatic and terrifying conclusion that he is in way, way, way over his head. Now that's amazing. All of that is beautiful. All of that is powerful. All of that is so great. And what on earth do we do with all that, right? I mean, that's great. But how does that change my life this afternoon? How does that change my life tomorrow or the next day? What do you do with something like that? I mean, this, this cosmic battle between these two powers, what do you do with something like that today? Well, what I would imagine that many of us would do with that is to try to follow Jesus' example, right? I am going to quote scripture against my temptations the way Jesus did, right? I'm going to go out into the wilderness and I'm going to fight Satan. And when temptations come, I'm going to, I'm going to quote some scripture at them. Now, it is obviously massively important to understand what the Bible says about temptation, and we need to obey that, right? However, I think that if that's our main takeaway today, I think we've largely missed the point of this passage. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to to hear Jesus' interpretation of what has happened here today. Two chapters later in Matthew 6, Jesus taught us how to pray. And very interestingly... He said a number of things about temptation. And what were those things? 
lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Now remember, how did Matthew 4 start? Jesus was led by God, specifically by the Spirit, into temptation. So Jesus is actually teaching us to pray that God never does to us what he did to him out there in the wilderness that day. Matthew 4 is not a pattern for us to follow. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught us to pray specifically against that ever happening to us. And why? Right. Because Jesus didn't overcome temptation by quoting scripture at it. Jesus overcame temptation by who he is and who he was and who he will be forever. That's how he overcame temptation, not by quoting scripture, by his character, by who he is. And unless you and I are commandment-keeping serpent crushers, we can't do it that way. We can't overcome temptation the way the commandment-keeping serpent crusher did. And so what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, that's why we desperately need to understand our Old Testament, right? We desperately need to. Every time the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, go back and read it and understand the context. So we don't foolishly read Matthew 4 and try to do battle with Satan out in the wilderness, but instead run into the arms of the Savior, right? Because the love of sin isn't broken by reminding ourselves how sinful sin is and that we shouldn't do it. Our consciences tell us that, and that is important to know and, and, to, and to embrace and to believe. But you just can't stop there. We're never going to be able to come, overcome temptation just by hearing about how bad it is and reminding ourselves how bad it is. We need to find a great, greater, deeper, more satisfying, richer love than our love for sin. And that's what we need to run from sin into the arms of the Savior, those saving arms that, that will embrace us if we will run into them. The very arms that will one day rip from Satan's hands everything that he's ever had or ever will have. The ones that will help deliver us from the power of the evil one. And at the same time, wrap us in his love. This isn't a how to fight temptation, try harder passage. This is a be delivered from temptation by standing back and marveling at the beautiful saving love of Christ passage. And that's the way we overcome temptation as believers. It's a discipline that we need to constantly work into our lives. It's little choices and little emphasis that we place on different things. And that is how we're going to overcome temptation. Not by beating ourselves up about it, but by running to the one who's already destroyed it on our behalf. Now, we're going to take communion here in a few moments. And so I wanted to give us just one example, one way that we can begin to put this into practice even today Right now. Here's a question. I don't know how often we stop and consider this. What will be the emphasis in your mind today when you come up and you take communion at one of these tables? Where will the emphasis be in your mind? Where will the emphasis be in my mind when I come up to take communion today? Now for some, we might understandably focus on how evil our sin is, how frustrating the strength of those sins can be and how we need to change. You do need to recognize and repent of your sins, absolutely, before you come up to these tables this morning. But you know what? We'll never really overcome those temptations if that's where we stay. If you stop there and that's what it becomes about this morning, you're not going to overcome. And why? Because then communion is all about me and it's all about my sin. 
You know, we can even take communion of all things in a self-centered, man-centered way. You can make it all about you. You can make it all about your struggle. You can make it all about your sin. And you can come here and do this thing, and it can be all about you. And so what do we need to do? Well, I would challenge you. When you come up to these tables this morning, after confessing, you do need to do that, and you do need to realize the sinfulness of sin. But just marvel. Just marvel. Just remind yourselves once again how glorious, how satisfying, how radical it is that the Savior Himself has invited you to come and to commune with Him at these tables, to bask in the glory of His presence. He has set a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Let's go up and enjoy that and, and to take great joy and think about this week. Not just, and don't let it stop here. Think this week, what am I going to do this week? In what ways am I going to seek Christ out? In what ways, what am I going to do for Him? What am I going to do with Him? What am I going to do so that my relationship with Him deepens and grows more satisfying and more joyful this week than it has ever been before? And if we will do that, if we will primarily fight temptation by just embracing the love of the Savior, learning to love Him more deeply and richly and more satisfyingly than we've ever loved sin before, if we do that, then I dare say that the things of this world, including our greatest temptations, will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray. O oh, great Heavenly Father, we have been so often beat down and crushed by these temptations which have overcome us so many times. But Lord, your Son has overcome. He has overcome because of who He was and who He is and who He always will be. Lord, I pray that we would not go running out into the desert alone. I pray that we would pray as you taught us to pray that we would run into your arms, that we would let you fight your battles for us, that we would not try to be so much active in being delivered from the evil one, but we would be passive. We would be delivered. We would trust you. We would embrace you. And Lord, I pray that as we embrace you, that you would grow our love for you, that you would help us to embrace that love and to love you far more than we love our sin. And therefore, taste, even if it's just a little in this life, Lord, taste what it will mean one day to be truly free from all of our sins. Lord, I thank you for the people of New St. Peter's. Lord, I thank you how you've richly blessed this congregation. Lord, I pray that you would triumph in a tangible way in all of our lives over the power and temptation of sin this week. Lord, I praise you for what you've done for us and what you will do for us. I pray, Lord, that as we now come to your table, that it would be all about you, that you would be the glorious radiating center of everything that we do, that even as we do these communal, beautiful things in our life together, that they wouldn't, at the end of the day, be about us and centered on us, but centered on you and your glory. May it be so, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.